grace and peace to you, and welcome to a special edition of Reaching for Real Life Radio, the teaching ministry of Pastor Sean Azaro of River City Community Church. As Pastor Sean also hosts a podcast where he gets to dig in deeper on those teachings and also hosts special interviews. And I tell you what, a special one happened this past week that we'd like to share with you right now. The podcast is called the Reaching for Real Life Podcast. It can be found in the usual places like iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and also at reachingforreallife.org. As Pastor Sean wanted you to hear this important conversation he had with Dr. Shelby Steele. Dr. Steele is the author of many great books, including White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era, and another one called Shame, How America's Past Sins Have Polarized Our Country. Now, a filmmaker with his son, Eli Steele. This powerful conversation is led by Pastor Sean, and this is Reaching for Real Life Radio. Well, I'm here with Dr. Shelby Steele. Dr. Steele, thank you so much for being with us. It is quite an honor to have you. Thank you for having me. Now, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you, you recently put out a film called What Killed Michael Brown? And the film actually is available on Amazon, and we'll talk a little bit about that process in a moment. But why did you make this film, and why was it so important? Well, I thought that, uh, you know, we're, we're always sort of wondering where race relations are today in America. And this seemed to me to be an event um, that involved, that revealed exactly that, where race is and what kind of role it plays. And particularly, we were interested in the matter of power. Uh, an event like the shooting of Michael Brown brings the attention of the entire world. People have covered it in Europe. Yet on the south side of Chicago, almost 3,000 kids are shot in one year, mm. and there's almost no attention. Yeah. Well, boy, then that means Michael Brown's death must have a, a cultural, symbolic load of power attached to it that, that's really remarkable. So we wanted to sort of look into that and see how it worked. The, the film just brings up some incredible themes. It really is outstanding. I had a chance to, to watch it, and it just, just the whole process. And, you know, obviously, we are now looking back at George Floyd, and it's like things just repeated, and it's so pressing for today. Uh, as we went through the whole George Floyd thing, what were you thinking? I mean, you obviously made this film. You were probably done with the film before that happened. Where, where was your mindset in that? Yes, our film was uh, done before that. We then sort of went back and, and uh, we have some, a few references to George Floyd. But, you know, it's the same thing. And it, the, these incidents are now, uh, well, you can't keep track of them. They're all over the place. Where you have something that looks like a black victim with a white perpetrator. Right. And so that is an echo of America's horrible racist history of slavery and segregation and so forth. Suddenly, America becomes accountable. Its, its history becomes accountable in this one uh, shooting or, or this one tragic event. We renegotiate our history all over again. Yeah, it's not just an event. It's like everything is brought into it. It's like when you have an argument with your wife. You know, it's not just that event. Right. It's, it's <laughs> everything that comes yeah. in past all comes into the room. Now, Amazon That's built. Right. Amazon banned the film. Okay, so you actually kind of as a little badge of honor, yeah. you've experienced cancel culture that that whole process. What what happened in that, and how did that end up? Yeah, it didn't it didn't feel like a badge of honor at first, but it did then <laughs> quickly. Uh, <laughs> well, they have a certain criteria that you have to meet in order for to, for them to accept you and, and stream you. Uh, and so, in our case, we passed all of their their criterion, but we were canceled anyway, and we weren't just canceled; mm. it was done in a there was a note of condemnation in it. Really? Uh, don't change the title and resubmit this. Don't try to to make an appeal to, for, to our decision. 
At any rate, the the Wall Street Journal got a hold of the story. Then the Journal uh, did a, a long editorial uh, using this as an as the latest example of a can- cancellation culture. And I was on one of their the Wall Street Journal's uh, show on Fox. So Amazon apparently be- was shamed mm. and embarrassed. They should have been. Um, <laughs> it was embarrassing. Yeah, they should have been. And very quickly, they we got a call saying, "Oh my goodness, we're so sorry." Uh, we really just made a mistake, and uh, implying the person who'd done that was uh, been taken care of. The person, as though yeah, it was a downline so anyway, guy. Anyway, we right. That's exactly right. So then they streamed it, and I'm I'm happy they did. They have the biggest platform in the world, but the world saw cancellation. Had a chance, another uh, yeah. another opportunity to to see uh, how the, how it works. When you see the content of this film and you realize how important it is, it, it makes the cancellation even more striking and more shocking. Uh, my first exposure to your work was your book, White Guilt. And uh, I, I got to tell you, because as you're sitting watching Amazon, a, a, a movie stream service, bans your film that was a really interesting, well-researched, well-done documentary. You go, how can this happen? How do we get to this place that we're where we are today? And your book, White Guilt, was so powerful in kind of walking through the process. Can you talk a little bit about that? You mentioned it in the film. You mentioned White Guilt and its role. How has that impacted our current racial climate? Yes, it, it, White Guilt began in the 60s. It, it was not here before that. I grew up in the 50s uh, before that. And in an America that was segregated, there was no white guilt. Uh, there was, uh, whites didn't feel guilty. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> maybe they should did, have. I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe they should have, but, but I didn't see it. But then after the, the 60s, there was really a, an acknowledgement, a, almost a confession. Right. I think this is America's most heroic moment. Mm. It's owning up to something like that. Right. And taking responsibility for it, I know of no other place in human affairs where that's that's happened. So it was a great moment. Mm. Now you've confessed that you did you did collude with evil, and you thereby give a cudgel to everybody else who wants to use it to sort of beat you up with and say you don't have the moral authority right. because you did commit. And so white guilt is that circumstance of not having the moral authority to say and think what you really believe Mm. because you are in terror of being seen as a racist. (laughs) Well, my point is that white guilt in that sense, when you collectivize it, look at it in a collective way, you see what an enormous historical power it is. It has defined liberalism since the 60s, which tends to be deferential, tends to be trying to buy back that innocence, that lost moral authority that America has suffered since the 60s. And so right away, blacks get used all over again. Well, we'll give you programs. We'll give you uh, public housing. We'll give you affirmative action. We'll give you such and such. So then you create this sort of black middle class that lives off of that white guilt and and becomes a kind of grievance industry. (laughs) And black, black leadership today is basically devoted to shaking down white guilt. Wow, those are, that's a strong statement. But what's interesting is you mm-hmm. you made the point that the insidious thing underneath the white guilt is that the it actually the point becomes a sewaging or or easing the white guilt 
it becomes more important than actual black development, than actually helping to help the black community kind of grow back yeah. into its proper place. And that's a really hard, but I think accurate assessment. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm glad you said that because I think that, that that's the whole tragedy of it is that right away it became preoccupied with the problem of lost moral authority in white America mm. more by far than the development of black Americans. <clears throat> what proves that? What proves that is the fact that it asks nothing of black Americans. We'll give you public housing. We'll give you school busing. We'll give you affirmative action. We'll give you diversity this and diversity. We'll give you all of this almost as a payoff. Mm. We won't say, we won't make any of what we give you conditional on your development, mm. on your, your hard work and the self-development. Uh, if we, we'll give you affirmative action to get into college, but you've got to get a B average. We don't ask for the B average. We just say you can get into college. Mm. So blacks have the lowest uh, grade point average, the highest dropout rate of any group in America. Well, that's what white guilt does. Wow. A, a system built on black power demanding white guilt, and round and round we go, getting nowhere. Blacks are farther behind whites today than they were in the 50s. Wow. And that's what that was kind of going to get to my next question. You, you mentioned in the film that the black poverty rate fell from 80% in 1940 to 40% in 1960. This is before all the all the big civil rights reforms. And it, that's it, right. And that and so what you're saying is now it's even continued to create decline rather than advancement. Exactly. It is it is our new oppression. Wow. It's people people talk about systemic racism. That's not the problem. The problem is systemic guilt. Mm. Uh, that w- where you were in a society that has now become timid and hesitant about enforcing its own values. Yeah. Um, and when that happens, then you, you get a, a broader decline. We think anytime we get a racial problem, the, the answer to it is to lower standards mm. in some way. And from the black point of view, we then just continue to be content, uh, uh, dependent on white guilt mm. rather than on our own skills, our own imagination, our own talents, our own efforts. Yeah. If we applied white guilt in in the NBA <laughs> or the NFL, there, there wouldn't be any blacks. Yeah, you, you're taking away the the incentive, the motivation to. You're saying we just sort of keep you over there as a troublesome group that we pay off. And, and you're, I love your yeah. illustration of the NBA or the NFL, where yeah, there all all of that. Just somehow in those circles, it was just like, you got to work hard. You got to be the best. And you can see how yeah. black America did. They worked hard and they became the best. They became the best. We played basketball from sun up to sundown. There's no mystery why we, why we got good at it. <laughs> None at all. Nobody, uh, nobody took it easy on you out there? <laughs> no, and no, but nobody said when you came out, oh, here's Johnny. He's, he's from a single parent home. Uh, you know, he does his father's never there. Uh, you know, what liberalism tends to do, uh, they don't do that on a basketball court. They don't care whether you have a father or whether you don't, whether you can read, they just don't care. You can you can dribble, you have moves, or you don't. Um, that suggests a direction for a model because when you're on the basketball court, people ask something of you. Mm. It's the ask that is the the the, the most important thing. Yeah. Uh, in development, you have to ask for it. 
Oh, that, that is awesome. This is Sean Azaro. You're listening to Reaching for Real Life. My guest is Dr. Shelby Steele, and we're talking about the film What Killed Michael Brown, available on Amazon, which is also directed by Eli Steele. Going on, you were, you were talking about the impact of this whole kind of maybe well-intended, maybe not so much prevalence of white guilt. Now, as a pastor, I'm very interested in things like redemption, reconciliation, because of its relational aspect. Uh, We're all about, you know, we say the Christian faith is all about first relationship with God, loving him fully with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, all this is doing is creating more division. And it seems like our current loop, this kind of thing of white guilt and then the extracting of concessions seems to make things like redemption and reconciliation impossible. How do you see the road to reconciliation, to real relational kind of oneness on this pursuit? Oh, I, I think in many ways, being honest about all this is, is, is the way. You know, when I was a kid before white guilt, you know, I, I would meet whites who would who 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 helped me enormously uh by saying here you you're gonna run into this and you're gonna run into that mm. and it's not fair it's wrong but i want you to be ready to handle it and be able to to move on you, you, you follow your path anyway and so there was in other words i was receiving a gift of kindness mm. they, they i'm not they would basically say i can't overturn the system of segregation here right but I can, t- I can. Uh, but I'm white. I do know what it's like. What what uh, you're up against. Mm. Um, and they would. I remember my. I've written a little about it, about it. But I had an eighth grade teacher, Mrs. Bergeson, who would do that and say, "Now, Shelby, uh, you you stop doing that because when you do that, people are just going to think of you as a black who's out of line." Mm. And she actually said that she, to you. Oh, she'd say she'd straight ahead. Mm. Reality. She was right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, as time went on, came to uh, uh, really depend on her in situations. We would, our basketball team would go to another school and we'd run into this and run it. And she would, she would help me navigate the world I really lived in. So I remained. She kept asking more of me, not less, but more. Mm. And she was proud of me only when I really did something. Wow. That was that was that was meaningful, and she was a, a kind of role model. Has been since uh, I started out after college teaching in East St. Louis, and and uh, the poorest black city in, in in America. And I saw the truth of what I had learned from her. Mm. That these, with my students, I would say, you do have it bad. There, you know, you are on your on your family is on welfare. The father is not around. There's there's drugs in the neighborhood. There's so forth and so on. But here's your, here's your way out. Here's your way to a better life. And it, it was what of it it works. It doesn't work all the time. There there are many people who are, it just doesn't work for. But there nothing else worked because what you're doing is you're you're saying here's reality. Reality you have to deal with. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, uh, it, if you learn to deal with reality, you're going to have real self-esteem, mm. uh, even though the reality may be ugly and brutal and segregation, right. you're going to have self-esteem because you are, you're taking charge of your, your handling reality. That's where, that's what it seems to me we need. The idea now that, 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 uh, it's so tragic white guilt gives us this little, well, what you need is affirmative action. What you need is racial preferences there back on the ballot here in California. Mm. 
we're going to socially engineer black people into equality. Mm. I heard well, you, my feet, run for your life when you when you when you hear anything like that. I heard you one time uh, mention you consider that insulting that you find those kind of things insulting. Absolutely, it's insulting, and we have to. The most important thing is that is your own self respect. Yeah, where where do you draw the line? As I as I kind of read White Guilt and watched the film uh, What Killed Michael Brown, you were impacted by your family by by your father significantly. You mentioned him multiple times in the book. And I, the more I look into it, your journey to making of the making of this film is really unique. I mean, in some ways, it reminded me of Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. It's like you experienced the perfect conversion of where you grew up, the time you grew up. You were uniquely you grew up in a uh, with with parents of mixed race. You you very uniquely were prepared to address this subject. How's that impacted you? Well, I was I was uh, you know I have no confusion about it. I was I was blessed. My father was and my mother. They were both very they were rare people. Uh, my mother was white. My father was black. My mother had a master's degree from the University of Chicago. My father had a third grade education. Mm. And he was probably the more the intellectual of the, <laughs> of, of the two. <laughs> but, you know, they, they accepted their fate. They met and married in the civil rights movement. And so I sort of grew up in that milieu. I consider myself fortunate because that's when the civil rights movement was a great movement and achieved great things. But yes, in the in the character of my father and what he had made of his life, and and never a moment, I never saw anything anything like self pity, like complaining about being a victim. I never heard a faint word ever uh, mm. from him in that regard. He had thought the idea of public housing was absolutely humiliating. Uh, that you had to have, depend on the go, you had to go live somewhere the government built for you because you couldn't make it on your own. And he wasn't really alone in that. Most of the men in, the, in that neighborhood were like that. They were laborers, all poor yeah. uh, in, in that sense. That gave, that gave me a vision of where blacks ought to move in the future, is that, mm. yeah, we got a broad deal, but we can't be defined by that deal. We have to be self-possessed, figure out our own way, ask difficult things of ourselves, sacrifice, so forth. Um, uh, and uh, gosh, we the liberalism that, that evolved out of the '60s just ruined, undermined all that. Yeah, I think it's important that people know kind of your history. One of the things that stood out to me is you kind of, as a young man in Chicago at that time, you kind of started to walk down that pathway of kind of a militant approach to the civil rights movement, and you were a little concerned about what your father would think about it. You, you wrote about that and just said you were a little nervous about talking to him about those things. Why was that? Yeah, because I thought he would. Uh, he was a smart man, and um, I, I I knew enough about. And, and uh, I was very lucky. He, he he was a talker. He would just talk you <laughs> into <laughs> into understanding, and 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 uh, you'd do anything. Give me a spanky so I don't have to. <laughs> but he would he'd talk to you. You know what was really precious to me was that there there was something in his message there was an idea of 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 uncompromise mm. of there have to be places in your life where you are uncompromising yeah people can come to you with the best of motives and and tell you that they can do this for you and they can do that for you and so forth but you you have to really learn to fight for yourself and to understand that you you're going to make it on what you do and on who you are yeah. And you have to be uncompromising about that. Friendly, open, cooperative, but uncompromising about about that sort of central focus. 
Wow, that is powerful. Well, we're talking right now the day before what I think is maybe the most caustic and volatile election in my lifetime. It feels like this yeah. is really important in this issue. What are the implications of this election maybe in your estimation? Well, <laughs> I think you're right. It's a, it's in a profoundly important election. I can say that I can't really imagine fully, don't want to at any rate, what it would be like. Uh, I'll be very explicit about my uh, politics. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a, I'm a Republican. Uh, I'm not uh, for Mr. Biden. I'm for Mr. Trump. I think that uh, I've worked a little bit with his people. I think he, I am very impressed. One of the things that impresses me about Donald Trump, to sort of cut to the chase, is that he's, he's the first president, certainly in my lifetime, who does, does not feel white guilt. Hmm. And it gives him a fresh way of, he, see, he respects all people, he respects blacks and has made certain policies that clearly uh, have them in mind. Hmm. Uh, but basically, he expects blacks to perform like whites, like any other group. There are people who would disagree with you about him respecting blacks, but I think the issue is they have a different definition of respect. As I listen right. to you in white guilt, what your understanding of respect is so much more healthy. That's right. It, it, you, you know, respect is, the, is I really respect you, I see your struggle. I see you, you, um, and I respect you. The sort of left vision of respect is I pity you. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to give you something. Well, Trump basically says I'm going to I'm going to give you things that ask something uh, that because I because I respect you, I wouldn't put you in a position where all you do is receive my my beneficence. Right. That's a ticket to dependency and weakness. So I love that about him. I think uh, we have a long way to go there, but there are signs now in black America that I think maybe the story tomorrow is going to be the black vote, the role it plays uh, mm. in this election. And uh, certainly the polls uh, indicate that, that his numbers have at least doubled in, in, mm. uh, in black America. So I see that as a great step forward for blacks, a yeah. tremendous step forward. Here's real self-reliance. Mm. His real courage in the face of all those demands that freedom imposes on us. Right. Here's what we need: strength, certainty, a sense of of, uh, of our own destiny. So I'm I'm God bless. I'm I'm uh, grateful for him having that orientation rather than condescending to us. Yeah, that's as the Democrats just condescend to the end of time, uh, as though they, they they keep sending the message: you're hopeless and you'll never make it. We'll always have to build a politics around your weakness. That's a very concise, but I think very powerful kind of description. In the film, What Killed Michael Brown, you speak of race as a means to power, and you call it a sin, and implying that it's one that continues today. Yes. Um, I, I think that that's all. Anytime anybody picks up the issue, picks up a race, they're using it as a means to power. I think that's what it is. You say, well, what is race? Nobody really knows. Well, I'm, uh, you know, am I close to race? Am I, it, it, it has, it, it has no inherent meaning in and of itself. Mm. Uh, race is, uh, you cannot achieve race. Race is something you pick up when you want to use as you want a, a cudgel to hit somebody with, mm. to gain power, to get ahead. You will then say, well, black people are deprived here and we don't, we, uh, we're behind here. So we need X, Y, and Z. We need, we need you to give us things. We need so forth and so on. 
so that I'm using race now uh, as a means to power. Yeah. And it's always, anytime when I see people in universities pick it up and we're going we're gonna to have ethnic studies programs and blah, 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 uh, and race is their means to do it. They're just saying, uh, my focus on race disarms you. You don't care about racism. I do. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's uh, it's always a corruption. And and it's interesting. You compare it as as much a corruption as segregation was. <laughs> They're both the same. Yes, I th- and I, th- I think even more insidious. Yeah. Segregation, was, for for all its evil, was was honest. Right in your um, talked about this all my life. You the 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 segregation has left you to yourself. He didn't try to take over your soul. The post sixties liberalism wants your very soul. They want to take you over as a, as a convert, and that's the that's the big that's why it's so hard to see because these pe- these are the people who are smiling in your face, but they're stealing your soul. Mm. We can't get anywhere until we learn to, to make that distinction. We're we're a people who really need a focus on self esteem and self respect, and as a means to move ahead. That's our next. That's our real challenge right now. Not whether we can get a wealthy America to give us more junk. We need to believe in ourselves. Dr. Steele, that is profound. Thank you. The film is called What Killed Michael Brown. You can get that on Amazon. The book that we've discussed is White Guilt by Dr. Shelby Steele. And again, Dr. Steele, thank you for being with us. This was an important and a powerful conversation. We genuinely appreciate your time. Enjoyed it. wanted to thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. And there you have it, Dr. Shelby Steele with Pastor Sean Azaro of River City Community Church. This full interview is available now on the podcast page at reachingforreallife.org. Dr. Shelby Steele's film, What Killed Michael Brown, is streaming now on Amazon. If you enjoyed this program, please let us know. You can send us an email through reachingforreallife.org, or you can call River City Community Church at 210-490-5262. As Reaching for Real Life Radio is a service of River City Community Church. We hope you join us again next time as you travel the road to real life.